0: And I said, Joe, I'm waiting till I'm in my 30s. I'm going to save up some money and go for it. He goes, let me talk to you. He took me to his office. He goes, look, I'm in my mid-60s. He goes, when I was in my 20s, there was a lot I wanted to do. I never got around to doing it. He goes, if you really want to do it, you got to do it. So that was my light bulb moment. I was 26. I went to my boss at the ad agency, and I said, hey, I'm going to pursue comedy professionally. And uh, that was it.
1: Are you an aspiring creative in entertainment, business, fashion, design, or the arts? Do you want to elevate your creative passion project to the next level? Then this show is for you. Whether you want a career in television, film, radio, literature, music, or beyond, Creative Breakthrough will show you how to take your dreams and turn them into reality. This show will not only leave you feeling motivated and inspired, but also provide you real-life tools to pursue the creative journey you have always wanted. I'm your host, creative coach, and chicken wing lover, Shireen Kassab, a.k.a. The Funny Brown Girl. Yes, I have an unhealthy obsession with chicken wings. Now, get ready to flex your creative muscle. Maz Gibrani starred in the CBS sitcom Superior Donuts opposite Jermaine Fowler and Judd Hirsch. You can check out his first original stand-up special, Immigrant, on Netflix and three other solo specials on Showtime. In 2016, he performed at the White House and is a founding member of the Axis of Evil Comedy Tour, which aired on Comedy Central. He's given two TED Talks, authored a best-selling book, I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV, and is the executive producer of Everything Must Change, a documentary about his sister's battle with breast cancer. Find out how Maz went from being a PhD student to an internationally known stand-up comedian. (laughs) Welcome to the guest chair, Maz. Thanks, Shirin. So I want to start from the beginning. First of all, before we start, I want to say thank you for making time out of your busy schedule. We're actually sitting in a hotel lobby right now doing hotel this interview. Hotel lobby, that's right. You got four shows at the Improv, two more tonight, right? Two more Orlando tonight. Improv. How yeah. are they going?
0: They're going well. Yeah. Um, it, it's a nice room. I like the room mm-hmm. a lot, and uh, I will say the early show was a really good show last night. The late show, we had a few drunk people. That happens. That happens on late shows, and it happens particularly on Friday late shows. Mm-hmm. Friday late shows are the hardest shows because people are exhausted from the week. Yeah, they
1: are. Yeah. They are. Because yeah. they've been out drinking like for a happy hour waiting for you guys to start, right?
0: Just thinking the more they drink, the better it's going to be. And it just isn't. I'm telling anybody who's listening right now, um, if you're super drunk, don't go to a comedy club because <laughs> you're going to act like a fool and they're going to kick you out.
1: So I want to ask, so when you come to Florida or come to the South, do you feel like you have to change up your material a little bit because of the audience?
0: Absolutely. I change everything. No, I don't. <laughs> um, I I do me, you know. I've been doing this for 20 years now. Wow. And um, there was there were times when I would say, oh God, I don't know if the audience is going to go with me on something or rather, especially because I do political stuff. The more you do it, the more you realize, no, it's, it's about you. It's your voice. So... Mm-hmm. If somebody doesn't like something I say, then they don't have to come, and um, and then in terms of just relatability, I feel like a lot of the stuff I talk about, I talk about being a dad, I talk about kids, so people you know can relate to that stuff, and then if I talk about politics, it's stuff that they know about. So for the most part, I don't think there's much to change. No,
1: no. So you don't you don't find. People here sometimes don't follow you because there's a, or not even here, but in the Republican states, Republican cities, or those are the people who just don't show up? Listen, the people
0: that are, people that come to my show kind of know what to expect Uh if they're, and and, and within our own community, within the Iranian community, there's a lot of Republicans. Um, There's a lot of people that actually like Trump and voted for Trump Mm -hmm. that are immigrants. And um, they, sometimes they'll get upset at me for making fun of Trump, but again, I just tell them, I go, look, this is my, this is my show. You can go do a blog or you can go do your own thing. This is my show. So most people that are my fans get it. And even if you're a Republican, I think you should, and I think people that are open-minded can see that, you know, when Trump does something stupid or wrong, <laughs> they should be able to admit it. You know, mm-hmm. let's call a spade a spade. Right. I would say, like, if you were to tell me, <clears throat> if I were to tell you I liked Obama, I like Obama, and you would say, well, you know, under Obama, there was the more drone attacks than than under previous administrations, right. I would have to uh, agree with you. I'd say, yeah, you're right. So let's agree on some of the facts. Yeah. But if you're just a crazy Trump, like whatever he says, I get tweets, somebody tweeted me today that Trump is Christ and they were serious, they weren't being ironic. And I go, okay, well, I can't, I can't have a conversation right. with that person. I don't even think that person understands comedy if I tried to tell a joke on about anything.
1: Yeah. yeah, so you just ignore them? I just ignore it. Yeah, I just ignore it. <clears throat> yeah. So you mentioned you've been doing comedy for 20 years. So walk us through your creative journey. Like, how did it start? What inspired you? And how have you made it to where you are today?
0: I was inspired by Eddie Murphy when I was a kid. Oh,
1: yeah. Raw or Delirious? Um,
0: Delirious. And before Delirious, he had Eddie Murphy Comedian, which was a tape. Okay. So this was uh, his early, early stuff. So um, he was becoming very popular. Me and my friends would listen to him. I was probably 9 or 10 years old, early 80s. And then... um, I wanted to be like him. I started doing plays when I was 12. Yeah, and I loved being on stage. And the directors would always tell me, hey, you got potential to do this professionally. And then having immigrant parents, Iranian parents, they would, you know, come to the shows. And I remember the director told my dad, you know, he could really do this. And my dad, oh, thank you, thank you. And then in the car, my dad's like, that bitch is crazy. Like, don't (laughs) even talk to her. Like, I I was going to ask, doctor. like, he
1: even let you be in the play at well,
0: or <clears throat> They didn't mind me being in the play because they knew they, they, that it was something I was doing. But they, ta- they tried to talk me out of it. You could be a doctor, you can be a lawyer. Yeah. That's what you should do, be a businessman. So they convinced me. And then uh, I went to UC Berkeley, where I okay. studied political science, with the thought that I'm going to become a lawyer and with the thought that I would uh, maybe just do comedy or plays on the side. And then I got my poli-sci degree, and then, I, and then I decided, you know what, I don't want to be a lawyer, I'll be a professor. So I got into UCLA to get a PhD in political science. Okay, wow. And the first quarter that I was there, I thought, let me go see what's going on in the theater department. So I went to the theater department, and I started to um, audition, and I got in their big play. And I loved being on stage. I was, I was like, this is where I got to be. So basically, I dropped out of my PhD program. And then I worked in advertising for a few years. And then when I was in my mid-20s, I thought I was going to save up some money. And in my early, I thought, when I turned 30, I'm going to really try it. And um, I was doing this play just for fun. And there was a guy at the ad agency who saw some clips of the play and said, hey, you're funny. Have you thought about doing this? And his name was Joe Ryan. He was this guy in his 60s. And I said, Joe, I'm waiting until I'm in my 30s. I'm going to save up some money and go for it. He goes, let me talk to you. He took me to his office. He goes, look, I'm in my mid-60s. He goes, when I was in my 20s, there was a lot I wanted to do. I never got around to doing it. He goes, if you really want to do it, you got to do it. So that was my light bulb moment. I was in my mid-20s. I mean, I was 26. I went to my boss at the ad agency, and I said, hey, I'm going to pursue comedy professionally. And uh, that was it. I started taking improv classes, stand-up classes, and that was 20 years ago.
1: Wow, and so were you just supporting yourself on your savings at that point?
0: Girl, I'm Persian. We're rich. Um, no, I... Uh, I know
1: I, you are. I see your Louis Vuitton shoes and yeah. tag watch, and I'm just playing. But um, I do see your tag watch. I do have a tag watch. <laughs>
0: uh, um, actually, the the way... I, so, I ha- I was living... My mom lived in L.A. And uh, so, I was living with my mom. Okay. You know, typical immigrant shit. And, uh, and I had my job at the ad agency, so I was making whatever it was like $25,000 a year, right. which back then was enough to live when I didn't have to pay rent. Yeah. And then I, you know, that paid for my car and everything else. And then at the time also, I had just gotten out of a relationship. Um, and I would stay at my girlfriend's house a lot. Then I, then I ended up in another relationship that then I ended up marrying her. Um, and she's the so, lawyer, right? She's the lawyer. Okay. So I uh, basically, in terms of like, I didn't need to rent a place, you know, between my mom and my girlfriend at the time, I had a place to stay. Okay. Um, and then I had my income and that was it. And then, and then I would go and do stand-up comedy at like, you know, anywhere I could find. Mm-hmm. You would get 15 bucks and go do a fish restaurant or something in San Diego, three hour drive. You know, Or once I became a regular at the comedy store, that actually helped me grow exponentially. And there I would, Mitzi Shore, who recently passed away, she was an amazing lady and she would put me up really late. So I'd be up with all the dirty comics and it was just, I learned, I I grew exponentially having to follow guys like Andrew Dice Clay and Eddie Griffin and Paul Mooney and Joe Diaz and Joe Rogan and all those guys, you really learn to get. Strong as a comedian, Mm -hmm. so
1: that's where I really grew. So how did you how did you go about finding your voice? You mentioned it earlier, like your your voice is distinct, and people either like it or don't like it. How long did it take you to find your voice, and when was that Uh, aha moment?
0: I would say, listen, when I when I first started, I took a stand-up comedy class. There was a lady named Judy Carter who was in my the comedy bible. Yeah, so she was in my improv class, and then she goes, "Hey, I teach a stand-up comedy class." I go, Mm -hmm. "Okay," so I took her stand-up comedy class. And in that class, they said, "Talk about what makes you unique." And so we went around, and they would say complete the sentence, it's hard when, it's crazy when, I hate it when, and then fill in your thing. And so I was like, it's hard being a guy. Okay, you need to be more specific. It's hard being a guy in LA. More specific. It's hard being an Iranian man in LA. Okay, more specific. Hard growing up Iranian in America. Okay, there you go. You're That's your voice. Talk about being Iranian in America. So early on, I was talking about that stuff. But being Iranian isn't the only thing that defines me, right? I mean, you know, I got a goofy sense of humor sometimes. You know, I, I, I like fart jokes. <laughs> you know, um, um, I like politics beyond Iran. Um, and I, I love, you know, I, I got a lot of parenting stuff. So all you just ultimately realize this is the stuff that's that's funny and, and important to me.
1: Mm-hmm, right.
0: That way I could sell it better. Because if I were to try and do a joke about the, the issue with lesbians and I don't know Tanzania or whatever. That's what's her name, uh, you know, uh, Nanette. Like she knows that experience. Yeah. I don't know that experience, mm-hmm. so I could be, I could be very um, on the surface about it, but I'm not going to go deep. Yeah. So you just talk about what you love. You talk about what you know, and I would say somebody told me when I first started, they go, "Listen, it's going to take you five to ten years to really." find your voice and that's that's really true five mm-hmm. to ten years getting on stage five to ten times a week and and le- realizing you don't have to please everybody you know i used to have jokes where it was like jokes that were for bars like if i'm in a bar i'm gonna mm. have the jokes about women's breasts you know it's like and they're and they would be like yeah but you're pleasing the crowd you're yeah, not talking, talking about, about what's it. on your mind right. you know
1: so it's important to be honest and genuine with yourself
0: i think so and sometimes listen there's comics like the mitch Hedberger. A teller, or or, or some others who might not be revealing as much about themselves, but they're comedy, they're they're funny writers. And so even they find their voice and go, this is the stuff that's funny to me. Mm -hmm. If you're having fun, if you find it funny, people are going to come with you. I saw Dane Cook one time performing in front of like five people or something, but he was performing like he was in in an arena. (laughs) And I go, holy shit, this guy's like really going for it. I realized he's selling it. Right, and so they, the the audience is going to feel that, you know, and the opposite is true too. You could have, you know, you know, be honest with what's going on. So if you're in a room, and it's one thirty in the morning, and there's only three people left, I love being, you know, that's you have fun with that moment, you yeah. know. Oh God, what, you know, what are we doing here, guys? Why are you here? Yeah, you know? crowd
1: work and stuff. Crowd really work and
0: talking about, hey guys, you know, I. I, I, have, I have a day job and I gotta be at work tomorrow I gotta be working like six hours but you know like be honest yeah. and then they feel it right you know
1: so you said you took a class and there's a lot of like friction within a comedy community whether a class is important or not do you feel like that really helps you
0: listen the comedy community can be judgmental everybody okay. thinks they're the <laughs> shit they're, nobody's the shit everyone's just as nervous everyone <laughs> n- nobody has any one way you know mm-hmm. this isn't like law school where you gotta go through A, a to get to you know B to get to C there's many ways to get started. And for me, the reason that a class was what I wanted to do was because I, I do well when I have assignments. Uh-huh. I also felt that a class was somewhere. It's like going to an open mic, but you actually get feedback. Right. And it was just the beginning, just the push into it. Right, And then one of, the first, one of the best things I learned from that class was get on stage as much as you can. So me and a few of the other comedians would be like, all right, let's go. We're at a strip club doing stand-up. <laughs> We're in the church basement doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. Wherever, there was a yogurt store doing stand-up. You know, whatever it is. It was a coffee shop. So you can learn a lot. And, and, you know, as long as that doesn't become your only thing where you're just staying in classes, you know. I took a couple other classes with a couple other comedians as well. But for me, it was just like, I've always been like that. If I, could, if I can get an assignment, it helps me.
1: So do you spend more time getting on stage or more time writing?
0: I do my writing on stage. So, and uh, back then, I suppose I used kind of Judy Judy Carter's technique of, you know, uh, brainstorming and bubbling. Where so you take a thought, you write it, and you put a circle around it, and then you put a line off that circle and see if other thoughts can come off of it. Mm-hmm. Try to build off of that. Talk into your tape recorder. Um, but now, if you look at my iPhone, I've got pages and pages of ideas and thoughts that I'll look at sometimes and go, Oh yeah, yeah. Let me elaborate on that. And I'll go on stage and I'll try and talk about it. Or the other thing that happens is, uh, and I tell the young comics, I go, you're going to get to a point where your voice off stage will become very close to your voice on stage. Because a lot of times when people start, I've seen it too, like, you know, I've seen young comedians who off stage are talking to you like this. And then they go on stage and their voice completely, it's like they become a different person. Yeah. You go, What happened to that guy that was so interesting off stage? He's doing, the, he's doing Richard Pryor. He's not yeah. Richard Pryor. So the longer you do it, the closer it gets. So then what happens is then in regular conversation, you might say something that's funny to you and you go, Ooh, I could take that on stage.
1: Right.
0: And so you take that on stage. So you're almost writing subconsciously.
1: I think that's the hardest thing to get to is that on stage, off stage, being, being able to do that.
0: It's just the time, you know, it literally, I mean, I have people who think like, I mean, I think we all think, well, well, you know the rule is five to ten years, five to ten times a week. But I'm a genius. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there in a year, and I'm only gonna get up <laughs> once a week.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You'll see it. I mean, if I always say, if you see somebody who's funny, your first question is to say how long, how long has that guy been doing it? You know, you can tell a pro like they land, they they're comfortable. I will tell you now, like I, I'm very comfortable up there. Even if there's something that kind of throws me, I mean, we all get thrown sometimes. But for the most part, I'm very honest and sincere. Last night that drunk guy. I wasn't bothered by it. I wasn't like, hey, what the hell? You know, I was I was actually very nice and sincere. I go, hey man, he was talking to this girl. They were talking loud. They go, Guys, you guys are obviously drunk. You want to talk. I said, can you guys just go outside? And they looked at me shocked and I was like, No, no offense. I just want you to go outside and talk and then come back. And that was just me handling it in my way. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, <laughs> that's twenty years of doing stand up and being comfortable stop in the show for a second to talk to the kids in the class in the front kids go outside and come back no one's no you're not being punished just go and come yeah you know so it comes with with time time. yeah Yeah.
1: so you have you've built yourself up like you've built yourself a global brand I mean you tour the world and people people follow you on social media people come out to your show you sort of have your your little posse your little clique of people Mm -hmm. who support you how did you build that
0: The way um, I think, the way I became better known around the world was when we did the Access of Evil comedy tour. And that was um, in 2007. It came out on Comedy Central. That was a tour that Mitzi Shore actually put together in the year 2000. So Mitzi was Jewish, and she was watching CNN, and there was was an intifada with the Palestinians and the Israelis, and Mitzi said, I think there's going to be a need for a positive voice for Muslims in the world. So she wanted to do a show where she would have her Muslim comedians perform like once every six months or something. I was the only Muslim comedian. I'm not even that religious, but I was the only you know, comedian from a Muslim country. And then she had seen Ahmed Ahmed, who's Egyptian, brought mm-hmm. him on. I'd seen Aaron Cater once, who's half Palestinian, brought him on. And then we all started touring under the name, um, and Sam Tripoli was on it too, who's Armenian. We were touring under the name Arabian Nights. Now, Iranians aren't Arabs. So they would always remind me of that. And I said, I know. And so a little while later, years later, we changed our name to Axis of Evil. And we got on Comedy Central. And that was around the time YouTube was taking off. This was like 2007. So what happened was people took our clips. And this is before Facebook or any of this other social media. So back then, somebody would send a link to this massive email list that they had. So I kept seeing my link. In these email lists that kept coming through my email, mm-hmm. like, so I was somebody on people's emails, and I was like, "Oh my god, people are getting to know me." And so eventually, this got to the Middle East. You know, there were, there, back then, this was during the George Bush administration, war with Iraq, war with Afghanistan. There was a lot of demonizing of Middle Easterners, unlike now, mm-hmm. um, where people love Middle Easterners and <laughs> Arabs and brown people. No, it was just it was a it was a ripe time, and I feel like it was almost like. There was an audience waiting for us. There was an audience waiting for our voice, And we were the right people at the right time because, you know, this is 2007. I started stand-up in 98, so I'd been almost nine years in. So I was strong enough so if people came and saw me, they're going to actually enjoy it. Right. It's not just a, a guy doing it it's just for the novelty of it. Ahmed, Aaron, everybody on our group was, was a few years in. So the show was actually a good show. And so then the Middle East actually had us come. And we went to the Middle East and we did five countries. And um, it was the first time there was a group of American comedians coming to do stand-up for people of the Middle East, not for the the troops. So I think that all helped. And then from there, it just picks up and picks up. And then social media and... You know, I did a TED talk that I didn't even know what TED was when I did it, but now it's got like eight million hits <laughs> it does, online.
1: Yeah, what made you want to do that?
0: <laughs> the TED talk came about because the guy who brought us to the Middle East, his name was Jamil Abuarde. He okay. was the promoter of the of the tour. Um, he was he did a TED X in Dubai, okay. and the main one of the main guys at TED was there. Saw him talk about bringing comedy to the Middle East, and then he said, "Hey, why don't you come to?" the main TED Talk in Oxford and bring one of the comedians. And you can do your, whatever, eight minutes, and then he'll do his eight minutes and do some comedy. So Jamil asked me, I said, sure. So I went and did that with him in Oxford. And that TED Talk, because I didn't know, I was like, how do I do a TED Talk? He goes, just turn your comedy into a talk, your stand-up. So that one got several million hits. And then they called me again and said, look, we're going to go do one in Doha, Qatar. You, can you come do it? And I happened to be in the in the region touring. I said, sure. So I did that one, and that's the one that's got 8 million hits. And it's amazing because nowadays you just don't know where someone's going to know you from. I was at an airport in, I think it was Sacramento or San Jose, and this, this like, African dude, straight-up African, came <laughs> running up to me. Hey, you are the guy from the TikTok. I know you, man.
1: That's awesome. I said, oh, that's great. So
0: I don't know where people know me from, but it all comes together, and, you know, here we are.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. No, because, I mean, whenever I'm in Dubai or anywhere up in that region your name is everywhere people anytime someone's like oh you're a comic do you know maz do you know maz like everybody asks about you yeah
0: that that you know i i was going back to dubai quite you know once every year year and a half i haven't been back in a few years i've been trying to get a tour together um but um yeah look i mean that's that's what that's what social media has done
1: yeah
0: you know when when we first went there with Axis of evil there was no real comedy scene. There was a couple guys doing stand-up in a few of the places, mm-hmm. like Nemar Abu uh Nemer Abu Nasser was doing stand-up in Beirut. And then there was a couple others, but there was nobody really doing it big. Yeah. Now there's comedy scenes all all across mm-hmm. the region, yeah. Saudi Arabia. I just ran into one of these young guys that I'd met in Saudi Arabia, and you know, it's amazing. He was taping a, a Netflix special. He's like, Hey man, I remember you gave me advice backstage, and I was like, I don't remember, but I remember you. (laughs) And it was so nice to see. So, you know, comedy is everywhere. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think, unfortunately, if if you don't, if you just watch Fox and if you just, you know, listen to Trump, Mm -hmm. you think that these people are all devils and they're all terrorists. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, like anywhere in the world, there's laughter, there's jokes. Yeah. And they all want the same thing that we all, everybody wants, which is just you know, a, 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 you know, good paying job, yeah. a happy family, you know, there's, so comedy is one of those things, you know, um, and that's, again, social media, I think, is a beautiful thing, or yeah, even yeah. Netflix. Netflix is doing this thing, I think they're calling like the Olympics of comedy or something, and they're having a bunch of comedians from different parts of the world have specials come out. Those little messages are good messages to put out there, so even if people that are even if they get a glimpse of it, they go, mm. oh, my God. Like, one of the most important things about our Access to Evil special wasn't us on stage. It was the audience shots. People, a few people, I saw comments. People go, I never knew these people left. <laughs> think about it.
1: Yeah. No, because you know? they think we're scary, right? Yeah. So why do you think, like, at, when you tour the Middle East or even in America, w- you, we really haven't seen like a prominent Muslim or Middle Eastern woman come? T- I mean, there's a bunch of Middle Eastern women. Well, listen, comedians. women
0: guys, they know their place, <laughs> and they really should stay in the kitchen. No, you know, I think, I think it's a matter of time. I think comedy for women, like just in general, numbers-wise, I think if you, I don't know what the numbers, but if you were to take number of men versus number mm-hmm. of women, I would guess that there's a lot more men doing comedy than there are women. Right, for sure. But I would also guess that that is changing more and more. Because I think that there's a lot of women who are in this age are going hey, I don't need that guy to give me approval I'm just going to do my own thing. Right. So you see like the Broad City Girls or the Insecure show or all these people coming up from different places um, the Michelle Wolf's, and you go, oh wow, there's some really funny women out there. And it's just that it was, it's, it's this patriarchy that we've set up, right? Where I mean, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is all about that. It's a great show, right? Such a good show. And um, actually, my my first stand-up I did was with Alex Borstein. She and I are old friends. And she took me to a place called Gallagher's in the Valley. And that's the first time I ever did stand-up. So I was so excited when she won the uh, Emmy for that. Um, But yeah, I think it's just a matter of time. You know, it's a matter of time. It's like, I think the reason we're just starting to see more and more Muslim and I say I say Muslim loosely because I think a lot of us aren't even religious. Like I don't want to I don't want to say I'm Muslim, and then somebody sees me drinking and they go, "You're not Muslim." Mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't I don't pray five times a day. I don't fast during Ramadan. Um, but by birth, I would be Muslim, right? But I think we're just starting to see even the Muslim men coming through, right? And that doesn't mean that men need to come through before women. It just means I think whether it's men or women, I think what it is is. Most of us have come the past 30, 40 years. Our families came. So whether you're Hassan Minaj with your Indian parents or, or Aziz Ansari or myself or anybody from that part of the world. I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know how long Mindy Kaling's family's been here. But when those families come to America, they go and they buy a uh, convenience store. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or if they're doctors, <laughs> they start practicing or whatever they are. And then they want their kids to go to college. And they want those kids to go and become doctors and stuff. But I think once that second and third generation starts landing, and they realize, oh wait, I could get into entertainment. I want to be funny. Yeah. So that's so I think that that's what's taken us in general so long. That's why, like, because you know we haven't been here a hundred years. Latinos have, you know, obviously African Americans have. But I think every culture takes a while for them to go. Oh, I don't yeah. have to follow this. So we're seeing more and more now women. Go screw this! I'm gonna go do it. Right. So I know right now there's some funny women. You know, you're you're a funny Muslim woman or oh, you man. know co- woman of color. <laughs> you know, um, brown <laughs> woman. Um, so there's look there's Daya Lakshminarayanan. Yeah.
1: She's out of San Francisco. Out of San Francisco. Right? She's yeah.
0: opened for me several times, and I've I've watched her grow. Mm-hmm. And she does some really funny stuff. I mean, it's a matter of time right. before these people are better known in the mainstream, Mm -hmm. but they're there. Yeah. You know?
1: So you've been on a lot of late night shows too. Mm -hmm. Like you've done back in the day when Jay Leno was around, you've done Colbert. What advice do you have for comedians who've been in the game for five, 10 years? And I want to get to that level. Like how do you get on those shows?
0: Gosh, I just think I'm going to take some time. Um, You get your set together Make sure you have your tight five that you feel strongly about. That says something about you. Sets you apart. Um, and then hopefully you have a manager or an agent or or there's a call. You know they they're doing auditions somewhere, and you go do it. You know I, I, again, it's time. I had I, I tried for so many years. I wanted to get on, get on, get on. No, no, no. I knew the bookers on the Leno show. They were actually very sweet. Bob Reed and uh, Mark Ross, I think. Um, Super sweet guys. And they were like, they came and saw me one time. Yeah, you're this is gonna this is this sets great. And then I got a letter from them, like a form letter going, <laughs> Sorry, you're not you're not accepted. And Hello. I called them, I go, Guys, what the hell is this? They go, Oh, sorry, we didn't mean to we're just you know, you're not gonna fit in this season or whatever, but we, we would have told you we, we didn't mean to send you this form letter we sent everybody. All right. So just kept trying, kept trying, and then the right timing came together, mm-hmm. and it was great. And then Colbert is another one. Colbert, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Colbert's. I wanted to get on Letterman. That was my one regret. I never got on Letterman. But I, I auditioned for Letterman, and the booker just you know, didn't book me. So maybe I had a bad set, or maybe I wasn't the right kind of comedian for Letterman. You just don't know. So it's just keep going, keep working on that set. Matter of fact, I wanted to Try and put a set together for Colbert again. I've, I've sat on the couch a few times, but I feel like I want to do this set about Trump that I have. I don't know. It's just keep going, you know, mm. keep going and find a way to get get it in front of somebody. Get get a good tape.
1: So I want to transition to TV because not only do you do comedy, you also act. Let's talk about like, I mean, you were on Superior Donuts for two seasons. Um, you've been on a multiple other TV shows and movies and stuff. How do you balance the two and How did you, I know you took acting classes. How did you transition or how do you maintain doing both?
0: Well, I did acting since I was a kid. I was doing plays. Uh So I loved acting and I was just comfortable on stage and doing all that stuff. So yeah, if you're just a comedian, I would advise you to take a couple acting classes, scene study classes, whatever it is. Because acting, they say, is just reacting, right? It's just listen, listen. You know, sometimes comedians are so used to talking and they don't listen. So you see that in some comedians who just... Aren't the best actors because they're nervous up there. So really get to a place where you're comfortable and you're listening. Um, and then I just once I started, I started auditioning, I started getting parts. And and early on, uh, when I would do stand up, you know, they would pay you fifteen bucks in L.A. for a set. But then I would do a TV show or I would do a commercial, and th- that would pay a lot more. So my acting was paying for my comedy. And now probably with my touring, I make enough money where that's paying for my acting, Mm -hmm. meaning I can take parts I want to take and say no to parts I don't want. Um, If I end up on a TV show, which I did with Superior Donuts, that means I need to stay in town a lot more. And I have young kids and my family, so I want to stay in town. Um, But what I do, you know, I love comedy. That's my. I love doing stand-up because ultimately when you're acting, you're... Doing the script that they give you. Right. When you do a stand up, you're talking about whatever you want to talk about. Right. So, even when I'm in town in LA, just on a show, what I'll do is, you know, a couple nights a week, definitely Friday, Saturday, sometimes Thursday even, I'll go and get on stage at the comedy store and laugh factory. And so that'll bang out, you know, that'll be four to six sets in a week, Yeah. 15 minutes at a time. Um, and I will work out new material. And that sets it up so that when I'm ready to go on the road, I can go on the road. Um, so we're in 2018. So 20, 2017 was it? I think it was 2017. was when I taped my immigrant special. and that came off of uh, that came off of our our taping, our taping ended yeah. for, the, for the show. And I hit the road right away. Mm-hmm. I've been go. I've been getting up, so yeah. I don't like let it go and go. Oh, you're
1: on break. I'm you're on break. On vacation. I, I want to keep going. Working. You
0: know. Now, of-, of course, if I were writing and all that other stuff, maybe I'd be like I'm too exhausted. But even then, you- it's great to get on stage. I love. It's part of my social. Like the, the kids fall asleep. My wife is tired. I leave. I go. Yeah. I go hit the. Clubs. Yeah, I was going
1: to ask you. So, how do you balance that with kids and a wife, like being gone on <clears throat> tour or even on set?
0: I go away as little as possible. So, for example, this weekend. I got Friday and Saturday, so I left Thursday, got in here late Thursday, did press Thursday morning, uh, Friday morning. I've got my shows tonight, and I'm on the first flight back, 7 a.m. flight back to L.A. I get into L.A. at like 10 a.m. on a Sunday. Hopefully that gives me enough time to make my son's soccer game. Definitely would give me time to make my daughter's soccer game. And then when I'm around during the week, if I'm, you know, I might have meetings here and there. Or I'm working on a pilot now for some talk show that once I get into it, that's going to take me away a little bit. But whenever I'm around, mm-hmm. I'm very hands-on. So, you know, my wife in the morning takes them to school. But then in the afternoon, I'm like, let me go get them. I'll get them and this and that. And, you know, I just, I, I like being around them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Though I can say that all parents like to be around their kids. So Mm-mm. it's fine if you don't. Mm-hmm. I know you talked about this a little bit, but I'd love to know, like, being an Iranian considered Muslim how do you go about being boxed in sometimes when you're either auditioning for for film or tv about being the terrorist or being the being the stereotypical well the
0: terrorist thing was early on in my career I had a few auditions and I got a few parts playing terrorists and I just took it because I thought you had to Uh and then quickly I realized I didn't want to do that so I told my agents then I said guys no more terrorist parts then there was parts of like you know falafel shop owner cab driver all Mm -hmm. that stuff I didn't mind those parts as much because, in my mind, I thought, look, when I'm in New York City or when I'm in LA or whatever, the guys that are my cab drivers are Middle Easterners. Yeah. you know th- that's who they are. So I could play those parts. Um, now I would say with the new generation of the Hassan Minajes and the Aziz Ansaris and all these guys, I say new, but you know the younger guys, I think that they're all really pushing for their voice, like yeah. their voice, and I and I understand that. Mm-hmm. And so I actually am in agreement with them. It's like I feel I'm at a point now where I'm like. I, would, I want to do a part that's my voice. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I've had parts like that where I was no accent. You know, I did the movie The Interpreter. I played a Secret Service agent who was an Arab-American but spoke like this. But I'd like to do more parts like that. At the same time, I still have characters that I do. So I'm a big fan of Peter Sellers from back in the day. So I have a character named Jimmy Westwood, who's uh, this, like, this, this Persian immigrant, Iranian immigrant, who wants to be a, an American hero. He's kind of a bumbling idiot, but mm-hmm. he saves the day. Um, so we're actually trying to turn that into an animation right now. And the key to that for me is he's the hero. So even if he's got an accent or whatever, he saves the day. Right. So it's about turning everything on its head. Even when I did Superior Donuts, you know, the guy had was an Iraqi immigrant, uh-huh. so he had to have an accent. But the good news was that he wasn't a terrorist. He was a businessman who owned some buildings in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made sure with the writers I said guys all of his jokes can't be related to being from Iraq like uh-huh. some of his jokes gotta be just something that anybody could say and they were and they, and they were, you know mm-hmm. open to that and I think that's important too is for people of Middle Eastern North African That that's the category now they're trying to get a category for MENA M-E-N-A I think it's important to have people from those backgrounds in these parts because then we can bring something to the writers and go guys like People in my community don't really, they don't, like, uh, ululate the way you have them ululating, you know, for no reason. So, and they listen. Writers are listening now more and more.
1: Yeah, and there's, I mean, this year, I, I don't remember the exact stat, but they're saying, I think it's double the number of minorities in the writers' room this year, this season.
0: It's very possible. Yeah. I mean, Rami Youssef has a show coming yes, out on Hulu. Yes, does, yeah. Yeah. You know? um, I think a lot of young people are going, look, this is my story, mm-hmm. you know, so either take it or don't. Right. And I think people are starting to really open up. And I've been, you know, I've been, I've been knocking on that door for 20 years. I mean, I sold two shows to CBS in the past that were based on my standup and it was me talking like this mm-hmm. and they just never went past the script. Um, and it's just timing. We just got to keep knocking. And now it feels like they're starting to smarten up a little mm-hmm. bit. And like I said, I've got this sketch show now that's based on a lot of these things coming from my point of view. So it would be me talking like this.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, we'll see, you know? <laughs>
1: well, best of luck. Thank you. So what's your goal in your creative journey?
0: You know, I used to say my goal was to get to a point where I could shine the light on a lot of other people. There's so many talented people out there. So I would love to, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of comedy. I'd love to be able to call up my friends. Like Adam Sandler calls all his friends and they go make movies and stuff. I'd love to be able to do that. And I did that with Jimmy Vestwood a little bit, you know? I got all my friends in and it was so much fun. Every day on set was just, so I looked forward to it. So I hope to be able to do more of that kind of stuff. I hope to be able to make um, products that have a social commentary. Um, and I hope to be able to keep doing stand-up till I'm 80, 85 years old, like Don Rickles, you know? Those are my career goals. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah.
1: What have, What have been the most memorable moments in your career?
0: Two of the most memorable moments happened just a few years ago. I got to go to the White House for Persian New Year. They had a celebration. No oh, yeah. for No For Nauru, okay. yeah. And they had me speak and then introduce Michelle Obama.
1: Oh, nice. And
0: that was like, I was like, my God, I go, this is bigger than anything. Because for me, I mean, it's like, who would have thought that this kid who came from Iran comes to America? His parents don't even want him to do this. He ends up doing this. And here I am at the White House at that podium that all the president's stuff speak saying, ladies and gentlemen, Michelle Obama. I mean, like, that was, to me, that was an amazing moment uh, in my life. And then the other one that was an amazing moment in my life was I got to give the commencement speech at UC Berkeley. Wow. And that was in front of 45,000 people in their football stadium. Because I went to Cal. Yeah. And -hmm. they had had me do their winter commencement speech a few years before. And that was a smaller thing. This was, like, the real deal one. And again, I got to get up there and speak and they listened and they laughed and they, I mean, it was, it was really cool. Like when you're asked stuff like that, you, you, you don't believe it. You're like, you couldn't get Barack
1: Obama, yeah. you know?
0: And the truth is they couldn't get Barack They were trying to get <laughs> Barack Obama. They couldn't get him.
1: I'm so excited for you. That was, yeah. sounds like a really cool opportunity. I mean, 45,000 people. Like, it was amazing. Leaving a lasting impression on those students before they go out in the real world.
0: But you want it to be entertaining, and you want it to be inspiring. Right,
1: and memorable. And, yeah, memorable. Like, you want to remember who spoke at your commencement, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I can't, I couldn't tell you who spoke at my, actually, no, I can't tell you who spoke at my bachelor's. At my master's, it was Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz. There
0: Dr. you go. Where'd Oz you get your master's?
1: At UPenn.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, like Trump.
1: <laughs> yeah, we went to the same business school. We haven't seen a diploma, so who knows, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I, one of my, you know, the idea was, if you look at it, again, if you see Conan, he does Conan is amazing. He did, He did. did. I think he did Harvard. It's not on video. It's written out. It's brilliant. Then he did Dartmouth. Again, it's brilliant. He's so good. And he's so specific, but you get it even if you're not from Dartmouth. So I was like, I need to come up with some lines that are specific, but people will get it. So I was like, you know, UC Berkeley has a lot of Asian students. So I was like, UC Berkeley <laughs> is this, it's that. And then I go, UC Berkeley is like... Lucy Liu is if no, if, if UC Berkeley, I I forget how the line goes. It's like UC Berkeley were an actress. It would be Lucy Liu, (laughs) smart, beautiful, and mostly Asian, you know, or whatever, whatever. It it was good. I think they liked it. That's awesome.
1: So what have been some of the challenges that you faced in your career?
0: I think my biggest challenge was, was the first moment was, was convincing my parents And realizing that I don't need to convince my parents that I just need to do it, that was my biggest challenge, really. It's like, you know, coming from an immigrant background, it took me 26 years to realize you live once, do what you want to do. Don't listen to your parents. That took me so long. It took me 26 years to get there. Or really, if you start at 12, when I really decided I liked doing it, so whatever, it took 14 years to get to the point where I go, I got to do this. So after that, everything else has been like, whatever, I auditioned, I didn't get it, move on, you know. I had to wait till... One forty-five in the morning. You know, you'd be at the comedy store with an eleven-thirty spot. At the time, I'm dating my wife. Was my girlfriend then? She was. She had a, uh, uh, she had a job, <clears throat> a real job as a lawyer. So she'd be at work all day. She'd come home. We're hanging out. I had my job at the advertising agency, and then
1: is, is your wife Iranian too? No, she's Indian. Indian, okay. And her parents. How did her parents react to her dating a stand-up comedian?
0: Our parents are very sweet. Okay. I think that they were, they didn't like, they didn't really know or care really. Uh-huh. Um, but but yeah, they, they're super sweet. Um, but we'd be hanging out and then I'd be like, oh, I got to go. And so that that wasn't good on the relationship at all. And then I would go and I'd say, look, I'm going to go. I'll be back. I'd go try and get up at 1130 and then some famous comedian would come in and go, I'm going up next. Yeah. And I'd wait for an hour. Then another guy would come, wait for an hour. Now it's one forty-five, and there's like three people left. And you want to leave, but you stay. And then you go up on stage and you do your 15 minutes. Well, that's challenging yeah. in terms of dealing with it in life. But really, because I loved it and I found what I loved doing, it was a no-brainer. I had to stay.
1: right?
0: And that's why I tell people, I go, find what you love doing. Because I, I tried a few other lines of <clears throat> work like business stuff that once I got rejected, I just was like, I'm, I'm done. I'm not trying this anymore. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't into those. But if you're into something, like if you really into being a doctor, then the first time you cut open, cut open a cadaver, you're going to be like, oh, this is great. You know, if I ever had to even look at a cadaver, I'd be like, I'm out. <laughs> yep, you
1: exactly. Know? Have you ever faced any challenges or obstacles just based on who you are being Iranian, Muslim, brown?
0: I mean, those challenges are more the challenges of getting the industry in general to realize that there's an audience for this. Like I said, for 20 years, I've been saying there's an audience, there's an audience, there's an audience. Look, I go to shows, and it's not just brown people. There's white people, there's black people, there's Asians. They get it. This comedy translates. So that's the big challenge. It's almost like it's almost as if you've got a product that you really believe in, And the world just hasn't caught up to it yet. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest challenge. But you just got to keep believing in it and keep pushing that product as opposed to like coming back and going, all right, screw it. How, how will you accept me? Yeah. It's not about that. It's about doing your voice. It's like the the book Fountainhead, which is Ayn Rand in that book. There's two architects and one architect is loved in the beginning by everybody. And the other guy's just doing his thing. And then at the end of the book people come around to appreciate this other guy for yeah. his uniqueness
1: i love that i have not heard that analogy before and i love that like waiting for the world to catch up versus talking to them what they want i think that's, that's a i think that's great advice
0: that's really i mean it's like it's you know you're doing your thing you know your thing really well keep doing your thing and hopefully people will catch up to it yeah. and maybe they won't maybe it'll be the next generation People would be like, oh, remember that girl Shiri? (laughs) She used to do this, you know, and that's just how it is. But I'd rather do that than try to figure out what people want. Because once you try to figure out what people want, now you're a jukebox. You're taking requests. You know, you don't want to be a jukebox. You want to do you.
1: Yeah, exactly. So what other advice do you have for creatives on their journey?
0: Just be active, you know. Um, Just to be um, entrepreneurial, to create your own opportunities. I even tell actors, I go... Um, don't sit in a cafe waiting for somebody, find a book, produce it, do a play, get into a scene study class. If you're stand up, you know, find a venue and put on a show once a week or whatever, hustle, 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 do a podcast like you're doing, you know, there's so many ways now to get out there, do it. Cause you never know what's that thing that's going to take you to that next level. And by doing it also, you're, <clears throat> you're getting more and more prepared as opposed to sitting and waiting. Yeah. Because uh, you got to be, you got you to gotta create your own opportunities. So create your own opportunities.
1: Awesome. No, oh, I love that. So let's jump into the lightning round. Yes. Lightning round, I'm going to ask you five questions. Rapid fire, you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received?
0: Best piece of advice? Uh, Joe Ryan, he said, if you want to go for it, go for it in life. Don't wait. Do it now. If you have a dream, go for it. Don't sit on your ass and wait. It'll be too late.
1: Yeah. What is your definition of success?
0: definitely definition of success is doing what you love doing. Uh, it's not the money part that counts. It's, it's finding what you love doing and just jumping in. The moment I started doing this at 26, and I, uh, I still had my day job, but I was so happy. That was it. I became really happy, and I was successful.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Who inspires you and why?
0: Who inspires me? You know, Muhammad Ali was a big inspiration to me because as a kid in Iran— he was huge and my dad loved him and I loved him and then the more I've learned about him the more I've loved him and what he stood for and peace um, and, and and being able to transcend boxing and transcend what he did so that's if I could ever get even close to him that would be amazing
1: what's a habit that's helped you on your journey
0: a habit that's hurt my habit right now is I drink really high octane coffee not this one <laughs> there's one there's a place called Kings Road in LA that I love that helps me wake up um,
1: is it like the nitro coffee or?
0: no it's just this it's a really good like it's like an espresso coffee it's really one of the best coffees that I've ever had I, I look forward to going I go out of my way to get there it's called King's Road Cafe the other real habit I think is probably just you know I uh, I don't I, I feel like I don't know if it's a habit it's just like a work ethic I feel like I don't give up you know I just I don't want to give up mm-hmm so whether it's getting older and it's harder to run and exercise, or it's you know, having to wait my turn to get on stage, I've got this thing that just like goes, You gotta do it, you gotta wait, you know. That's that's probably a habit of some sort or of a work uh-huh. ethic of some sort.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what do you want your legacy to be?
0: It to be just like uh, that, that I helped people and that I was good to people.
1: People wanted to find you online. Where could they do that?
0: It's all at Maz Jobrani on Twitter, Instagram, as well as uh, Facebook. It's at M-A-Z-J-O-B-R-A-N-I. And I also have a website, mazjobrani.com, where they can enter their email address. I send them monthly updates as well as uh, all my calendars are there.
1: Awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you. I really you. appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, before you hit pause, did you find this episode helpful and enjoyable? If so, could you leave an Apple podcast, aka iTunes review? It'll take you less than one minute and mean the world to me. The more ratings and reviews the show gets, the more people are able to find this podcast. If you're unsure how to leave a review, no worries. If you're on your iPhone or iPad, go to the homepage of this show and scroll down to write a review. Click on it and you'll be able to rate and review the show. If you're on a Mac from iTunes, go to the show homepage and on the top, click ratings and reviews. Also, please subscribe to get the latest episodes once they drop. If you enjoy the episode and know someone who would love it, please share. From your iPhone, click on the icon with three dots and then share via social media, email or text. If you want to hear more, head over to funnybrowngirl.com forward slash podcast. You can also find me online. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Funny Brown Girl. Also, sign up for my free newsletter for more tips to advance your creative journey at funnybrowngirl.com forward slash subscribe. And again, if you enjoyed the show, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Now, go flex your creative muscle and keep winning. Thank you for listening. See you next week.